Does the problem of teleological suffering, teleological evil, refute Christianity and Christianity's loving God? Hi, folks. This is Andy, the analytical preacher. A number of scientific or philosophical atheists claim that this argument about teleological suffering and evil is the single best argument against there being any type of a loving, benevolent God, most certainly including then the God of the Bible, the God of Christianity. I've even had some of my atheist friends tell me that this argument is irrefutable by Christians. They have no interest in discussing it with me, they say. They just want to explain it to me and then have me admit that there's no way to argue. The argument is summarized by them in this way. If we assume that humans have free will and I punch you in the face, you are suffering from a blow to the face, but you wouldn't necessarily say, well, that's God's fault. You would say, no, God granted each of those individuals free will and one choose to cause suffering to the other. The teleological argument is that there are some processes in nature that seem to be designed where intentionally they would cause suffering. Now, I say designed if you believe in the God version of creation. So for an atheist, they would simply say things evolved that way where this creature, in order to say eat, in order to reproduce, has to harm this creature. But nature just randomly evolved the creature to do that. No one's to blame. But if you're telling me, they say, that a God created these creatures, and in order for this creature to continue its life cycle, it has to inflict this horrible suffering on other creatures. They usually stick to human beings. has to inflict this horrible suffering on human beings. Then there's no way that you can say that God has done that. There's no way you can justify God creating something that without using its free will, it's been created instinctively by demand by definition to inflict harm. Usually the the arguments they use involve parasites which feed on host organisms or involve parasites, things like malarial parasites or guinea worms, acanthamoebas, the latter of which actually eats away at your eye to continue its life cycle. They usually use examples of parasites and guinea worms and acanthamoebas to say, if God designed them, to have to eat your eyeball in order to reproduce, then that clearly cannot be a loving God. It just looks like things were randomly created by nature and they are what they are. The typical Christian response, of course, is, well, God created a perfect world. We read about that in the first few chapters of Genesis. And then human sin cursed the world. And so what we see, these horrible sufferings that come about, were actually caused directly, indirectly, when human sin cursed the world. My atheist friends will generally counter with, I believe science shows, they tell me, that parasites existed millions, maybe hundreds of millions of years before humans ever did. They were causing this type of suffering long before any human ever sinned, so that simply cannot be the answer. I've countered in the past. So you say the parasites existed hundreds of millions of years before humans, so they must have been different and could invade a different host besides a human host, though some of them now seem programmed to specifically only be able to survive 
attacking human hosts. So you would agree there has been some micro-evolutionary changes, if not macro, but you agree there's been at least some micro-evolutionary changes in these parasites or viruses or whatever it is that we're speaking of. Well, of course, they say, there would have had to have been some evolutionary random genetic mutations that caused that organism to now be able to or to only be able to infect a human if for millions of years you believe they were around and the humans weren't there to be infected. And then Christians usually counter, you know, science has no way of telling us whether hundreds of millions of years ago, these parasites, guinea worms, etc., whether they were invading, whether they did continue their life cycle that way, or whether the different microevolutionary changes that they've experienced over time changed them from being some benign creature to something that causes immense suffering in order to redo their life cycle. So the timelines may not match up. A biblical creationist timeline may not match up with an atheist evolutionary timeline, but because we don't understand how malarial parasites or acanthamoebas always reproduce. That argument just doesn't hold the water. It just doesn't hold the weight that the atheists think that it does. And we still see today, of course, in the very short time period that we can observe, we still see microevolutionary changes in parasites and viruses and bacteria just based on environmental stress Based on changes, say, in the host's immune system, if my immune system is able to do this and that counters a malarial parasite, then randomly some genetic mutation may happen in one of those malarial parasites that allows them to now go around what my immune system has done to counter it. We see bacteria change based on drug resistance, etc. So it's quite possible, of course, that these small parasitic organisms have evolved and that they do cause a great deal more suffering or only started to cause suffering after human sin rather than before human sin. And now we really get into a very fuzzy gray area where neither side has enough data or evidence to really refute the other. The Bible, however, actually takes us in a completely different way. So if I'm trying to argue with my atheist philosopher friends about this, I can try to use my best human knowledge, but the Bible says we actually want to go a different way. Now, the Bible teaches us that we need to be rational thinkers. We need to make objective decisions. We need to test things to determine truth from falsehood, etc. Won't cover that in this podcast. I'll put one out sometime back entitled, The Bible Teaches Christians to Be Rational Thinkers. You can go look at that podcast for more information on that. The Bible does teach us to be rational thinkers when it comes to understanding the world around us and how it works. And again, how we determine true prophets from false prophets and how we determine truth from falsehood and truth from error, etc. But when it comes to issues of why is God doing what he's doing, I don't like it. I don't understand it. It makes me question his existence. It makes me question his love, etc. The Bible takes a completely different view. We often think about the book of Job in the Old Testament as being some treatise about Job and his patience. That's not at all what the book of Job is about. The book of Job is actually about the exact issue that we're speaking about here. Job couldn't understand why God was doing or allowing what God was allowing. Job was suffering immensely. And the ultimate answer in the book is, 
We simply, with our finite brains, we cannot process holy, God-generated thoughts. The prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's a long account in Job. It's a 42-chapter book in the Old Testament. Job is subjected to a number of tragedies. He's proclaiming innocence, doesn't understand why God is either doing this or allowing this to happen to him. His wife tells him, why don't you just curse God and die because you're the most pitiful thing I've ever seen. His friends come by. They begin to pontificate about what Job must have done and about how God must be reacting to it and all these sort of things. You go on through 37 chapters of this back and forth. I think the reason it lasts so long, 37 chapters of essentially Job, his wife, his friend, saying the same thing over and over, is because that's how humans do. We continue to find these things that we don't understand, that we don't like about creation. We want to find anything or anybody other than ourselves. It can't be human sin cursing the world. We want to find anything or anybody other than ourselves to blame. And we just go on and on and on. But starting in chapter 38 of this 42-chapter book, God responds and he tells Job, dress for action like a man because I want to see just exactly what you know. And then he pours out some challenging questions to Job. And he asks Job, do you know how this was done? Where were you when the foundations of this was laid? Where were you when this was created? What do you think about that? How would you explain And of course, Job is unable to do that. And in the end, what happens after God has challenged Job with a number of things, Job basically confesses and repents and says, yes, you're right. I don't know enough to really question you. I can maybe understand how gravity works, or maybe one day humans will invent telescopes and cars and iPhones because you told us to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. You've told us the earth will work consistently And you've told us to be rational creatures. So scientifically, we can understand so much of the natural world. What our brains can't understand is the brain of God. And Job was humbled when that happened. I can give sort of a silly down-to-earth example. I worked with a gentleman once and he was really struggling with something on his Microsoft computer. And he said, I really want to meet Bill Gates in a dark alley. And before I beat him up, I want to ask him, are you incompetent or are you just mean, sadistic? And I said, well, first of all, I don't know that you can beat Bill Gates up. Good luck with that. But second of all, maybe you don't understand. So think about it. I'm having trouble with something in Windows. Why would this be built this way? This is ridiculous. There's got to be a better way to do it. I go sit down with Bill Gates. I'm one of his top engineers at Microsoft back in the day. And I lay my complaints on the table. And I tell him, this is irrefutable. Because if you did this and this works this way and I have this problems with that and my coworker has that problems with that and if you're supposed to be so smart Mr. Tech Entrepreneur Billionaire why couldn't you design a system and I can just see Bill Gates and his engineer looking over at each other going do you want to take this one or do you want me to take it no you go ahead and take it one says to the other And then they go to the whiteboard and they lay into me and they start, do you understand this? Do you understand that? Do you understand that? And of course, I'm going to be going, well, no, not really. And I think eventually, after they've put enough stuff on the whiteboard, giggling to each other all the while, I'm going to say to them, you know what? I've been sufficiently humbled here. 
I don't even understand everything you put on the whiteboard, but based on what you've put on the whiteboard, here's what I've come to believe. You have created the best product you can create given the limitations of nature and whatever else to which your product is subjected. And I can see how you've clearly, in the area that concerns me, you've made vast improvements from the old MS-DOS days to the Windows 10 or 11 days. I can clearly see how things are better. I didn't understand. And to be perfectly honest, Mr. Gates, I'm still not sure I understand everything that you just explained to me. But I've been humbled enough to know that the reason I can't understand it is because your tech ways are so much higher than my tech ways. Now, I'm a human and Bill Gates is a human. He's certainly richer than me, and I would strongly suspect he's a great deal smarter than me as well. But he's still a human. If I can't understand everything that Bill Gates has done to get Microsoft to be what Microsoft is... What possibility do I have of understanding God and what God is doing? I've heard the great Oxford mathematician, John Lennox, says when people challenge him about some of these things, why would God do this and why would God do that and why would God make things that way? Any first year engineer student could outdo this. He always says he asked them, what is energy? Define it. Where did it originate? He goes, not How do we measure energy? Not how do we use energy? Not energy is what holds cells together. Not energy is what propels a plane in the air. But what is energy? And of course, people will say, I don't know. I've done similar things as I discuss with my atheist friends who are just convinced that if they see something and they don't like it, they don't understand it, they thought they could do better, they immediately say, God must be insane or very, very mean and wicked. I always ask them if they can provide for me, preferably in the form of some mathematical equation, their theory that harmonizes general relativity and quantum mechanics. I've yet to have one show me their mathematical equation that does that. Most of them, in fact, say, you know, the best minds in science, Isaac Newton, Albert Einstein, Carl Sagan, Stephen Hawking, none of them have been able to solve that scientific conundrum. None of them have come up with a grand unification theory, or as some scientists now call it, the God equation. None of them have discovered the God equation. None of them have discovered a grand unification theory. How am I going to sit here in an Applebee's or a Waffle House and write out on the back of a napkin my mathematical theory. I said, well, does your theory that would harmonize and synthesize micro and macro physics, does it involve or does it require a theory of quantum gravity or is that moving in the wrong direction? I don't know, they say. The greatest scientific minds don't know, they say. How can I possibly know? What's your point? And my point is this. In God's mind, The grand unification theory, the God equation that all scientists, physicists, cosmologists are looking for today, it's as simple as one plus one equals two. And if we can't do something, not individually as a human, but collaboratively together over hundreds of years, if the best genius minds in science can't do something as painfully simple as come up with the mathematical equation for the grand unification theory, 
What on earth makes any single human being think they could possibly understand the mind of God, the actions of God, or the motives of God? Now again, God says, you can understand the world that you live in, and you should subdue it and have dominion over it, and the world will work consistently, and you need to be rational, scientific thinkers who produce technology to overcome and subdue and rule the world in which I have put you. Go do those things. Best of luck. You're not going to understand God because my ways are above your ways and your finite mind simply cannot think like me. So you see something and you say, how can a loving God possibly create a guinea worm? or an acanthamoeba. How could that possibly be? And I say, I don't know, but I don't really understand how Bill Gates created windows either. And that's far, far, far simpler for me to try to get my hands around. I can't write a mathematical equation for the grand unification of all physics. And it's far, far easier than understanding the mind of God. And I just have to humble myself and say, I know God loves me. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you know what happens when I read that verse? I say, one, clearly God does love me. If you will lay down your life for someone else, you clearly care about that person. So even though guinea worms and malarial parasites exist in the world. And in order to reproduce themselves, they have to invade a human host and cause suffering in that human host. How do I know that with that happening, God could possibly love us? Because while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. But you know what the second thing I always think when I read that verse? God, why did it have to be that way? Why did Jesus have to die? God, why did your own son, who is God himself, Why did God have, couldn't God have designed, oh, he's all powerful, he's all knowing, he makes the system, he makes the rules. Couldn't God have designed a way where humans could be forgiven and the curse could be redeemed without God himself having to die in order to bring it to completion, in order to bring the plan to fruition? The answer appears to be no. That was the best. Really, that was the only way it could work. But how, if God knows everything, created everything, can do anything, why did the plan have to involve suffering? And I say, I don't know. I know God loves me because Christ died for me. It is stunning to me, almost concerning to me. Why did Christ have to die? Couldn't God have planned it a different way? And I read scripture. I read back through the book of Job. I read through the Psalms. I read through Proverbs. And I say to myself, you need to humble yourself, you arrogant little something. You do not understand the mind of God and you cannot understand the mind of God. If humans were suffering and we didn't understand it, we didn't like it, we pointed a finger at God and God sat there on a throne ensconced in glory and laughed at us, Okay, I get it. Maybe that's a nice argument against the God of the Bible and the God of Christianity. But when God himself came into that world and suffered more than all of us in order to redeem us from that world, 
then you have to say, God is doing things the best possible way for the best possible reasons. And we see that. We don't question the love. We would never think that God is evil or uncaring because we know that just the fact that Christ died shows that God loves us. And then we're left to say, and I humbly say, I cannot understand why Jesus had to die exactly the way that he did. But I know that God loves me and always does what's best for me. Maybe one day when we're in heaven, God will explain to me the grand unification theory. He'll explain to me what parts of general relativity or what parts of quantum mechanics weren't quite right that didn't allow them to snap together in a unified theory. And my mind will be blown. And maybe God will explain to me amoebas and guinea worms and why Jesus Christ had to suffer so in order for redemption. Couldn't God just forgive us? But maybe God says, I can explain to you the grand unification theory, but you'll never understand guinea worms and why Jesus had to die because my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are greater than your thoughts. Yes, it's concerning. Yes, you start to question why did Jesus have to die when you see the suffering he went through. Couldn't God have done it a different way to protect his son? I get that. But questions like that, issues like that, are absolutely in no way the best argument against a loving God of the Bible and certainly do not refute any counter argument from Christians that the God of the Bible is the loving God who sent his son to die for our sins. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, this is Andy.